0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown the Podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
1: Hey, welcome. It is indeed Downtown the Podcast. Welcome to episode number 137. Our final podcast of 2020. Rich Kimball here along with Kerry Haskell. And we are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance Where security meets strength. Well, we wrap up the year on the podcast with a couple of authors. One new to the game and one who's been telling the story of American music for more than four decades now. Later on in the second half of the podcast, actor and author Mike Anthony talks with us about some of the amazing experiences he had tending bar on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. During the production of Hamilton, all chronicled in a wonderful new book called Life at Hamilton that uh, it celebrates the power of theater, the power of kindness. Um, and it's all about Mike uh, as an actor, finding his place as a part of that show, even though he wasn't on stage as part of the cast. We begin things, though, this week by visiting with music journalist Peter Guralnik, who has been writing about music For uh, more than 40 years now, two landmark books on the life and career of Elvis Presley, a remarkable uh, biography of Sam Cooke, and many more. His latest, a series of essays called Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing. We had a lot of fun talking music, and especially about Maine's own Dick Curlis with Peter Guralnik. I could read an entire book that was just your travels with Solomon Burke. What, what a wonderful adventure that was. Oh, I mean,
2: Solomon was the most amazing you know, person. I mean, he, he and Sam Phillips, I've often said, are the two most charismatic people I've ever met and two of the most eloquent people. I mean, Solomon was just an astonishing talent. And I'll never forget the first time I saw him at the Summer Shower of Stars uh, uh, at um, Donnelly Theater in 1964, where he was headlining A Soul Review, which had Joe Tex and Otis Redding on it, too. And he just was so charismatic. I mean, there was no question. Today, everybody says Otis Redding. There was no question of who took the show whenever Solomon was on stage. And from the time I met him in 1980 until he died, uh, it was just one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever had in my life. And I've said that, you know, you you could do a a full-length movie about Solomon if you spent a day with him. And being with him, it was it was as if he were operating a three ring circus. Except that doesn't do justice. (laughs) Number of rings that he was, you know, what are the number of balls that he had in the air? I mean, he just was an amazingly inventive, amazingly funny, but deep feeling person. One of the things I try to explore in the new book is the complexity of the relationship with Solomon. Who was, I've, I've never had more fun with anybody in my life. I've never enjoyed anybody more. But it wasn't all, uh, this is a stupid expression, beer and Skittles with him. I mean, it was, I, I mean, there were difficult times sometimes. There were strains. And he, the last three times that I saw Solomon, and again, I, you know, I, you can't manufacture things like this and be very dishonest if you did. But the last three times I saw him, he burst into tears
1: mm. with
2: a kind of show of emotion that I think many people whom he, you know, just saw him as this jolly guy who was so funny. He was funnier than any comedian I've ever heard or I've ever met, anyway. And he, uh, but he was—he felt things so deeply. And the last time, or one of the last times—I I lost track of which is which. But uh, no, I guess it was the last time. And I was talking to him about—I had given him my book, my biography of Sam Cooke. And he, and the next time I saw him, he says, "Pete, you know, it's great." But when are we going to do the book? I mean, I don't know how much he read. I'm sure he read the parts that he was in, but I I don't know. Maybe he read the whole book. But he says, when are we going to do the book? And the book, of course, is the book about him. And I tried so hard to do it. And one of the things that I tried to do was to get him to talk into a tape recorder, to talk to his daughter, Victoria, who was, of all of his kids, was the most like him. She looked like him. She had a sense of humor. And they were very, very close. And I said, you know, it just don't try to tell the whole story. Let's just focus on one little, you know, era, one little, one little uh, uh, moment. And then you can send me the tape. I'll work on it. We can see, you know, if you're happy with it. We can try a few things like that, and we can send it out and try to get, you know, see if any, try to get some interest. And I said, how about if you talked about when you were a Wonderboy preacher uh, when you were seven, eight, nine, and he was preaching in Philadelphia? He says, what about when I was 10? <laughs> I said, well, okay, when you're 10, why did something happen when you, when you were 10? He said, that's when they put me out on the street. <laughs> and you know, this really kind of took me back. And I said, well, okay, well, why did they put you out on the street? And he says, you know, I've been trying to figure that out all my life. Wow. And then I said, well, who put you out on the street? And he says, I don't know. I don't know. And he just started crying. Now I I think I do know at this point. I think I understand. I mean, he didn't want to say the whole story, and I'm not going to go into it now. But, but, you know, it it was just such a powerful thing. And you know, you you try to reassure somebody. I mean, it, I tried this in a couple of instances to, you know, say know, you say to somebody who's suffered a loss, and you say, look, the person who died, they'll always be with you. And they look at you like, what? What are you? What are you talking about? They're gone. You know, and that was the way he was in this, in this situation, and. It was just an amazing moment, but he was just an incredible person, and I really tried to put his whole life and and my relationship with him over a long period of time into a perspective that I'd never addressed before.
1: Well, it was it was very powerful. I I also loved meeting a different Colonel Tom Parker than the uh, the black or white character that we have been led to believe he uh, actually was for many years. And and I love the well the little dance that uh, the two of you were engaged in for many years, trying to get him uh, to open up a little bit more about his story.
2: Well, I again I had so much fun with Colonel Parker. I mean, I feel that this is a serious. Um, miscarriage of justice, the way in which uh, Colonel Parker has been understood, and one thing that I think should be understood from the start is that when he met Elvis, he was the superstar. Elvis was not a star. Elvis was a star in the Mid-South. He had sold a certain number of records, but for Elvis, Colonel Parker, and this is Elvis at 19 years old, um, 20 years old, he, uh, for Elvis, the Colonel was his ticket to a world stage that he had in mind from the time he first started. He may not have been able to envision it, but that's what he wanted to reach. And Colonel had managed Eddie Arnold to a level of stardom nobody since has ever achieved. Maybe Garth Brooks came close, but Eddie Arnold dominated country music, and it was through the, Colonel's, through the Colonel's belief, first of all, in Eddie Arnold's talent, just as he believed in Elvis's, and through the inventiveness of his, uh, what he called exploitation, which is basically promotion. And the drive that he put into it. And he just he revolutionized the music business, first with Eddie Arnold and then with Elvis. Mm. I think that in that sense. But as a person, he possessed so much wit and so much humor. Not like Solomon Burke. Nobody was like Solomon Burke. <laughs> and, and he he uh but he I I had the opportunity when I was working on Careless Love, the second volume of the Elvis, my Elvis biography. I had the opportunity to go through all of the Colonel's papers, which uh, Elvis Presley Enterprises had bought. They were in a warehouse near Grayson. Yeah, I don't, and, you know, when I say oh, I had the opportunity to go through all of his papers, you couldn't go through all of them. I mean, I but you know, I saw the correspondence. I saw the ways in which he uh, addressed the business problems, or the the doing a con- movie contract, or setting up Elvis's first movie deals or uh, all these different things and the way in which he wrote to Elvis which was just brilliant when Elvis was in Germany and was just totally down right he uh Colonel wrote him letters uh which uh were just are uh, just masterpieces of construction in terms of trying to lift his spirits Colonel couldn't go to visit him in <coughs> sorry he couldn't go see, see him in Germany because Colonel was not a US citizen he was a uh an illegal immigrant from Holland. Now, why he married a U.S. citizen and he was friendly with people like Lyndon Johnson, so why he was never a naturalized citizen, I don't know, but he, but he wasn't and he couldn't. Uh, but these letters were just just astonishing. But in my relationship with, with Colonel, I had met him. Uh, I went down to Memphis when I first started um, my Elvis biography, which the first volume was Last Train. And I went down there in, uh, in the um, January of 88, I went to Memphis because Colonel was uh, speaking at the Elvis birthday celebration. I figured, well, I'll never get to meet him, but this will be my uh, chance to absorb his aura. (laughs) uh, And then I was sitting with Sam Phillips, whom I'd known for quite some time at that point, about 10 years. And Sam said, you know, I think I'll go over to see Tom because he would never call Colonel Colonel. (laughs) Right. He ain't no damn Colonel. And, um, So I went I just trailed along behind, you know, like a great journalist. I just followed in Sam's shadow (laughs) and he introduced me to Colonel. And then I, in the immediate aftermath of that, I wrote a a letter to Colonel and told him I was just starting on a biography of Elvis and just wrote a letter and heard back from him immediately, you know, with a letter that started friend Peter and ended (laughs) as your friend Colonel. And then it would be printed out underneath Colonel, which was his signature. The colonel was his title. <laughs> so, uh, and then, But then he invited me to his 80th birthday party in uh, June of 89. And um, so I went to it. I mean, I was thrilled to go to it. Uh, and uh, I was unable. I could just go out for the night and come back from Las Vegas. I had to be back early the next day. That's a whole other story. But um, he, after the, you know, party was over, and uh, it was over pretty early because Colonel went to bed pretty early because I think he woke up at about four in the morning. But uh, he was sitting in this uh, throne-like chair with a carved elephant sculpture behind him. He loved elephants. He loved the circus. He worked in the circus. And uh, so I went up to him. He and Sam Phillips were talking. They were arguing, just hammering tongues about the exact order of events in in, um, uh, November, or beginning of November of 1955, when they were working out the sale of Elvis's contract to RCA. And they were just in total disagreement, each of them in total command of every detail and agreeing on everything except the point of it all. But in any case, I, I go up to Colonel and I say, you know, hi, I'm Peter Garamick. And, you know, I just wanted to thank you for inviting me to the, to your party. And he says, I put you on the list in this kind of guttural accent, which people took to be Southern for years, but was actually Dutch. He said, I put you on the list. And I thought, oh, you know, he's kind of not understanding what I'm saying. So I said, no, thanks so much. I really appreciated you. He says, I put you on the list. Well, the third time he said, I put you on the list, it suddenly occurred to me he was telling me something that I should have understood at the beginning, that he, by inviting me, by having me out there, he was giving me the opportunity, he put me on the list. He gave me the opportunity to meet all these people who were central to Elvis's life and who were, uh, um, you know, who otherwise might never have spoke, spoken to me. And I took advantage of that and I wrote, I, I didn't tell anybody at the party, it was a party, so I didn't tell anybody I was working on a book, but I wrote to them immediately afterwards, people like the Aberbacks who ran uh, Elvis's publishing company, um, people who were involved in, 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 uh, running the uh, Elvis tour, Tom Hewlett who ran the Elvis tours in the seventies. And I wrote to them, said, well, I met you at the party and stuff like that. And they saw me it, where I think they never would have. And they saw me because Colonel had put me on the list, but the correspondence with them, which I talk about quite a bit in the chapter <laughs> of the book is it's, it's like playing, you know, I watched um, uh, the Queens gambit recently. That's about my greatest exposure to chess, <laughs> but uh, it was, it's, it, Corresponding with Colonel was like, you know, it's as if you were playing a chess uh, chess match with a with a chess master. And while you might be thinking two or three moves ahead, he was twelve moves ahead. And whatever I would throw things at him, and whatever I threw at him would just come back at me within a day or two, and it just completely turned around and I and you know completely trouncing me in any intent that I had. But always he would say, "I wish I could help you, Peter, but you know." I'm not a dirt farmer. and All these people, all they want is dirt. And besides that, you know, you you can't imagine the number of people who have approached me. And if I told you these things, they would all be mad at me. So I just can't do it. I'm sorry I can't help you. And then he would help me. So it was great. It was just, and, you know, so I, I stayed in touch with him for, you know, until the end of his life. I, mean, his, he, I went to his 85th birthday, and we stayed in touch, and I went to Las Vegas and visited with him. And yeah, I, I'm not claiming a great closeness. But it was a wonderful and illuminating experience and uh, and revealed a side of Colonel's personality. You don't have to know anything about Colonel's personality to give him credit for what he did for Elvis. And uh, In fact, if you saw some of the letters he wrote to Elvis at the beginning of his career, upbraiding him for his behavior on stage, this is in 1955, and saying, I'm not gonna represent you if you act like that anymore. Because as important as it is to me to represent your talent, I'm not going to, you know, um uh, tolerate that kind of thing. But when it, when Elvis signed with RCA he sent Colonel a telegram, which is as close to a letter, I think, as Elvis ever came. And um he wrote he sent him a telegram saying, You're like a father to me, I love you like a father. And and it's it was true. And it may have been like so many, it was a marriage that it was a youthful marriage for Elvis. And maybe after ten years it was it was a marriage that ran out of steam. A lot of marriages do. But it was it meant everything to Elvis for those first 10 years.
1: I, I found <laughs> the, the chapter the cha- on Doc Palmas to be uh, so inspiring. He was he was such a larger-than-life character, but uh, the, the fact that he continued to write and create, r- literally until the end of his life, I, I thought uh, just made his story so powerful.
2: Well, yeah, and you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking how I wish that I could have written a chapter on Dick Curlis, that had that same feeling as the, as, as the chapter on Doc Palmas, because the chapter on Doc, you know, is it's so up and it's so entrancing. And it's not that Doc's life—I mean, he's, he he contracted polio when he was six years old or eight years old, I forget which—and you know, he was in a wheelchair for uh, most of his life. Or I mean, he was on crutches first and then the wheelchair at the end of his life. But um, and I don't mean to slight Dick Curlis in any way. I mean, he meant as much to me as as Doc but it was a much harder story to tell but with doc doc was just um doc's daughter sharon did a do- did a documentary on him she didn't she she was she uh was there at the inception she didn't end up directing it but she brought in all the people and uh, it's just it's called aka doc promise it's it's the best music documentary one of the best documentaries i've ever, I've ever seen but one of the things about it is that I knew most of the people because I'd known Doc again for a very long time. I mean these are people, all of them you know doc Palmas, uh, solomon Burke um, dick uh, uh, Dick Curlis, to whom I was drawn not initially by their music but then also as Pete Charlie Rich uh, but th- in this documentary, I knew most of the people, and you know I hate to say this because you know I'd like to say. I'm the kind of guy who likes everybody, but I wasn't totally <laughs> fond of some of the people in it anyway. I mean, I, I had, there isn't a single person in this movie about Doc, Doc Palmas. that doesn't come across as the, as a person that I would like to have as my best friend, <laughs> I mean, no matter what I knew about them before. And that's how Doc inspired people, how he lifted people up in a sense, but his, his creativity, I mean, here's a guy who wrote Save the Last Dance for Me, he wrote Little Sister, he wrote uh, Mess of Blues, I mean, uh, he wrote, um, what's the Dion song? Uh,
1: Oh, uh, Teenager in Love, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. And, um, you know, all these songs that are just roll off the tongue and are familiar to anybody who knows this kind of music. But there he was at the end of his life. I mean, quit music for, for quite, maybe for 10 years. Quit songwriting because he just didn't see any future in it. It was a combination of things, and he didn't think any of this was going to last. And then he came back, and he he collaborated with me to build. He wrote with Bob Dylan for a while, which nothing really came of that. But this is how what high regard he was held in. But here he was in his 60s writing songs that were cut down from the kind of songs that he wrote from Save the Last Dance for Me. This is not to take anything away from Save the Last Dance for Me, but they were cut down. They were much more um, direct, I guess, emotionally direct. And that uh right up until the day he died, literally, he was writing in the hospital with Dr. John, Mac Revenack. Uh they were working on songs uh for a Johnny Adams album that was uh it came out as a tribute to Doc Con- it was the Songs of Doc Pumps, Con- which is just a great great I think it's called the Imitation of Life, but I could be wrong, but it's on Rounder. But he was working on songs and writing right up until the very end. But and that's all very well if you're writing lousy songs. It's still admirable that you, that you you know that you stick with it, but he wasn 't writing lousy songs he was writing the greatest songs he ever wrote in his life i think the most with the most direct emotional pull and with a kind of dedication a clear eyed uh, uh, view i mean in the book i 've got a picture photographed by his daughter Sharon, and you look at him this is on his deathbed really he was i went to see him in the hospital. i mean I wasn 't the other day was, the picture was taken, but I went to see him in the hospital and he was dying and but he uh Sharon took this picture, and if you look at it, it's just this clear-eyed gaze that you just feel like he sees everything, and that's the way you felt. He was a great company, wonderful person to be around, but he just was, I don't know, he called me up. I mean, he called me up after he read, uh, I think, Lost Highway in 79. And he said, do you really write this? I was running a camp, boys camp, on Lake Winnipesaukee, uh, which I ran for 22 years. And he called me up at camp and he uh, um, said, did you write this? And and I said, yeah. And and he just started talking about what it meant to him and this and that. And we've got to get together and we got together in the fall and we were friends forevermore
1: and and, uh, still are, even if he's not around. The book is called looking to get lost adventures in music and writing. It is uh, just a wonderful celebration of music and, and the incredible people who created it uh, through the years. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for making some time for us today. I I love the book so much and, and so great. And, and and thanks from all of us here in Maine for spreading the word uh, about our uh, Dick Curlis. but everything in this book is, is so captivating and uh, uh, I've been enjoying your work uh, since that very first book, and it's wonderful to finally catch up with you here.
2: Well, it's great to be on your show, and thanks so much. I, I really I really enjoyed it, and, and it's great to be talking about Dick, and not just about Dick Curlis, but about the Maine country music tradition in Maine. It's, I mean, it's, you know, people should understand that, that none of this music is the claim of any one place. I mean, Nashville may be the industrial center of country music but that has nothing to do with where country music grew up and it grew up just as much in maine and in you know uh, indiana and ohio where lonnie mack grew up and all over the country where wherever their people grew up in the country and heard the call of this music and it it has meant so much to people and will continue to mean so much to people absolutely Uh, peter thank you so much thanks i really enjoyed
1: it peter graunick talking about his new book looking to get lost adventures in music and writing. And, and if you haven't read any of Peter's books before, uh, man, they're all great. Uh, Feel Like Going Home is wonderful. Uh, the uh, Sweet Soul Music, Lost Highway. The pair of Elvis books, Last Train to Memphis, and Careless Love are all outstanding. And loved his loved his thoughts and stories about Maine's own Dick Curlis, who I, I knew a little bit. I you, met Dick many, many times through the years and, did some lengthy interviews with him, but man, Peter really got to the, the core of what made him such a unique talent and such a special individual as well. It's uh, it's a little odd for me because I really only knew him sort of after the fact, mm. but how big he was having come out of Maine in country music. Really astounding. Well, yeah, to, to think of it today. I mean, you couldn't even imagine today somebody from Maine, from northern Maine especially, Having a top five hit on the country charts and then rolling off another nearly two dozen top 40 hits. Yeah, it's an amazing run. Yeah, absolutely. And a wonderful book as well. Uh, Peter Guralnik here on Downtown the Podcast. When we return, stories of life at Hamilton with author and actor Mike Anthony.
0: Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. There's nothing rich folks love more than going downtown and slumming it with the poor. They pull up in their carriages and gawk at the students in the common just to watch them talk. Take Philip Schuyler, the man is loaded. Uh-oh, but little does he know that his daughter's Peggy, Angelica Eliza, in the city just to watch all the guys. Work,
2: work. Angelica.
0: Work, work.
1: back here on downtown the podcast well hamilton the musical has become one of the biggest phenomenons in broadway history and uh, then did it all over again this past summer with the release of the film version of the play mike anthony is is an actor and a writer who has been working for several years as a bartender at the richard rogers theater it gotten to know lin-manuel miranda actually going back to the days of of Lynn's first Broadway show, In the Heights. And Micah began a series of social media reports about some of the encounters he had uh, backstage uh, in the hallways of the Richard Rogers Theater, uh, selling drinks and food to the famous and, and the regular people who were just captivated by this incredibly powerful musical. And he's put them all together in a great new book entitled Life at Hamilton.
0: Good afternoon, Rich. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, it's great to have you here. This is, uh I mean, it's such an incredible book. And uh, I, I want to go back a little bit to sort of the genesis of this. Like, well, like a whole lot of actors, um, mm-hmm. you got to do other things between gigs. And so uh, right. you've been tending bar in New York City. And uh, I'm not, I found out, it's funny, it's a small world, the theater world, that I, I think you worked with uh, uh, another friend, uh, Kent Burnham. Yes,
0: indeed.
1: It is a small world.
0: Sure it is. Sure. Yeah, he's one of the um, one of my uh, one of the guys who trained me in the job. Yeah, Kent Burnham.
1: That's wonderful. And so uh, you were doing that on Broadway, and actually, your your connection, your association with Lin Manuel Miranda as a bartender preceded Hamilton.
0: It did. Yeah, I met Lin uh, way before I knew who he was at In the Heights. Um, I uh, I was. I was brand new on Broadway and knew nothing at all about the show. And there, this guy uh, was just in the lobby, and he came up to me and started chatting. Uh, and I thought he was maybe another a merchandise seller or, or a part of the front of house staff. And then later on that evening, when a rehearsal was going on, I popped my head in to see him up on the stage. And uh, and that's how I discovered uh, who, who Lynn manuel Miranda was.
1: And then you were reunited uh, when Hamilton uh, came to Broadway, and everybody was excited about it, but you recount in the book uh, a little preview for the folks there working at the theater, and we'll talk about how that impacted you, how moved you were by seeing this play out.
0: Oh, my God, Rich, it was unbelievable. I mean, In the Heights was fantastic, right? It was just a fantastic, groundbreaking show in its own right. Uh, But Hamilton... You know, there was all of this buzz from downtown when it was playing at the public theater downtown um, about the show. And and when uh, the day before the first preview, Lynn invited some of the house staff to come watch the show. And I said, of course. So uh, it was me and maybe seven other people sitting in that big, empty theater um, to watch it for the first time. And, and I knew very little about Alexander Hamilton. I'm ashamed to admit, I know, Rich, you're a history <laughs> if i recall correctly so i'm embarrassed to say that i thought maybe alexander hamilton was a president possibly you know i knew he was involved in a duel uh he may have won it or lost it i wasn't sure so my my sense of the history was just was just atrocious uh so i was uh what you definitely call a blank slate coming into that and i was unbelievably blown away within minutes of the show starting. As everyone, as a lot of the world knows now, I mean, it was just this, um, just this steam engine uh, of energy it was just an incredible thing to behold in that big empty space. And, and at the end of it, uh, you know, my, my my everyone's you know in tears. We're just all in tears and trying to give the the biggest ovation that we can muster. Uh, but we were just drained from the experience. I mean, truly. Really, it was clear that it was lightning in a, in a bottle. That there was something there, uh, and, and something that was going to change uh, Broadway. It was like a seminal event um, that was going to be looked back on as as something uh, really important.
1: And you had that personal connection uh, with Lynn, but also uh, with Christopher Jackson, who had been in in the Heights. <laughs>
0: Yes, Chris, Chris. Again, when in the Heights was the Broadway debut for a lot of those folks, and uh, yeah, I met Chris um, one day. I was I was heading back to get some ice uh, in the alleyway for the bar, and Chris was sitting drinking a coffee on on the steps back there. And I just said, "Hey, you know, it's been so great watching you." uh watching you up there because chris is a force of nature he's un- unbelievable and he said oh thanks man and and then when i i started to bring the ice buckets back he grabbed one and he's like let me let me help you with that and he walked it all the way uh you know back to the to the uh bar with me and so um yeah it, the the whole group the, one of the things about Lynn that's extraordinary is he creates this familial atmosphere throughout the whole theater you know it's I mean I I'd always been an actor before I became a bartender and I have to say it was a little it felt odd to be on the other side of the curtain Um, it wasn't where my heart was necessarily and that's part of what the book was about was um, becoming um, accepting where my heart ended up being um, and finding the joy wherever I I was but it it was a little bit odd uh, being uh, in the house rather than up on the stage but Lynn uh, is so inclusive in the way he operates that we really felt like we were part of it. Uh, we, we truly did. And, and, and it, it, it permeated through the whole rest of the, uh, the cast as well. So they were all so open with us and would visit, visit us in the lobby. Um, you know, one quick story about Lynn, he, he, I, 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 I've now been a bartender on Broadway for 14 years and this, this had never happened the day after they won the Tonys. Lynn walked into the theater and put the uh, two Tonys down on my bar um, so that we could all take pictures with it. all of the bartenders mm-hmm. in front of house staff. And I've never um, I've never experienced that before. That, that That's the sort of atmosphere that he creates.
1: Well, and I'll say, Mike, one of the most powerful parts of the book is that realization you have that you've been working ever since college and and really back to high school at acting it was your passion it's what you wanted to do and and you've done it and been successful at it but you also realized that what you were seeing on the stage in Hamilton was at a a different level and that was a tough realization Uh, and then and you were uh, part of it too it tied into the great story you're on the Hamilton softball team and then uh, when they started doing Mm -hmm. the ticket lotteries uh, Lynn realized that he could entertain people waiting in line by doing these impromptu shows and you were invited to participate in one of those. And, and can you talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, how, how that made you feel to be part of it and yet not completely?
0: Yes, it was a complicated, um, <laughs> a complicated series of emotions. Actually it, it was, uh, first of all, I got, someone walked into my office one day and said, uh, Lynn, wants to on stage tomorrow at four o'clock and handed me sheet music. <laughs> he wants to rehearse with you. And I was like, Lynn, Manuel Miranda wants to rehearse with me? Now, I'm not a singer, Rich. You know, I, I'm an actor. I've only done straight acting before other than in, like, high school. So uh, the, the I instantly began to sweat at the thought of having a musical rehearsal, not only with Lynn, but also Alex Lackamore, who's the orchestrator and just a musical, you know, savant in his own right. So um, I was sitting in that rehearsal that day, and, and Lynn is, like, giving us direction on on the song and um it was it was truly um a, a sort of an out of body experience i'm thinking i'm sitting here with the you know the song time of our time giving me this direction uh, just for this brief moment in time and it was really extraordinary and then we went out and we did the performance um on the steps of broadway those those performances happened right outside the theater for all of the people gathered and, and then we went back inside, and to go to the stage, you take a right, and to go to the house, you take a left. And all of the actors took a right, and I took a left. And in that moment, it, there was I realized that there was this, this sadness that had been lurking underneath all of this excitement that Hamilton was. It, as thrilling as it was to be a part of it in any way, um, even bartending, it wasn't where I thought I'd be back when I was uh, you know, playing Nathan Detroit in high school. Um, so it was, it was also difficult in that I realized watching these people that I don't have what it takes. I simply had to come to terms with the fact that my DNA does not seem to contain the instructions to move my body in the way it needs to move <laughs> or to, 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 to make my vocal cords vibrate in the way they need to to make the sounds. Um, that aren't uh, injurious to people to listen. <laughs> I just don't have that. So, um, you know, then, then it becomes a question of um, finding what will make you happy. And one of the things that I write about in the book, and, and that has uh, been a real um, important realization for me in my life, is that though you, you can't necessarily be whatever you want to be, Right. Which is what we all tell our kids and everything. And, and that's the first parent's duty. Um, but it's not necessarily true. Right. We end up finding out we can't necessarily be whatever we want to be. I wanted to play for the Red Sox and uh, I turned out I did not have the skills for that either. But the important thing that I learned is that you can always keep finding things that you do want to do uh, as long as you keep going at it. You know, there's more than one thing that's going to bring you happiness in your life. And when I started sharing these stories um, about things I was witnessing at Hamilton uh, and they started getting shared a lot on social media and before long, uh, you know, most of the stories have a very positive bent. You know, I I tend to be of a, of a, an optimistic uh, deposition and, and, and um, I started sharing those and uh, disposition, sorry, not deposition. And, um, people started writing to me, uh, these beautiful messages. You know, I, I, I remember getting a message once from a parent, for instance, who'd lost a child and, um, something that I'd written had, had brought some comfort to her of of some kind. And that email, that message, that one message alone, uh, brought me more fulfillment than anything I've ever done on any stage. Um, because it, was you know it was just a, a it felt like a, a real impact on on someone's life uh, not that theater does not give a real impact obviously it certainly does but um i i just ended up finding um this other path to fulfillment in my life uh by sharing these stories which was just a total surprise and it came when i i stopped um worrying so much about not being where i thought i was going to be and just started existing where i was and taking a good look around look around look around as <laughs> as lynn writes and um and realizing that in the moment you know just there's the potential for there's the potential for sort of magic in every moment right if we're looking at things in the right way and we're really paying attention uh, and especially when you're somewhere like a, in the lobby of, of Hamilton, there's just extraordinary things all over the place. And I started to really see those and pay attention to them and take them in. And um, and my life went in this in this other unexpected direction. Does, does that, I, I, you know, I've talked for 10 minutes. I can't even remember the <laughs> question. Have I answered anything?
1: That was perfect. No, we're talking with Mike Anthony. His book is Life at Hamilton. Sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story. The encounters uh, that you wrote about first on social media and now in the book with with the famous and the everyday folks are, are so powerful and so moving. The the story of Hamilton is inextricably tied to Barack Obama, in in I think even more closely than. Camelot was associated uh, with John F. Kennedy, and then, of course, the move from the Obama era to the Trump era has in some ways changed the way we look at the musical, but I mean, can you talk a little bit about the incredibly powerful experience of having Barack Obama in the House to see the show?
0: Yes, that that was um, certainly one of the highlights of my life. It, it's one of the stories uh, that my my poor uh, grandkids uh, will, will be tired of hearing. Um, for, for me, Barack Obama was a big um, – was very meaningful in, in my life. Uh, you know, not to get too, too political on your show, but I, I – um, Oh, no, we do it like all the
1: time, Mike. Feel free. Oh, do, oh good. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> for, for me, the years of
0: George Bush's presidency were very difficult uh, psychologically, and um, and when Barack Obama um, got nominated, I mean, I remember Obama giving the speech at the 2004 national convention, Democratic National Convention, and thinking, "Oh my goodness, why can't I vote for that guy? Who is that guy?" <laughs> and then when in 2008 he actually uh, ran and got elected, I, I mean, I was just over the moon. I, 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 I my my girlfriend and I were sitting. With, with my family and in my sister's living room, and there was silence when the results came in because we were just sort of overcome. And then he came out and gave this what I consider to be like superhuman speech. He had like the weight of history on his shoulders, and he came out and gave this incredible speech, um, and, and his whole the whole mantra of yes, we can, uh, it was just incredible. And then so to hear that he was coming to Hamilton one day um, – I, I you know I I I nearly uh I nearly peed my pants. I don't know if you can say that on the radio, but I I got close to that. I that's how excited I was. And um I yeah, I described in the book um the meeting, the quote-unquote meeting I had with him, which is really me just dabbling, but I was in he was held in this um little makeshift um waiting area, of just a very small space and which was near where our ice machine is again. A lot happens at that ice machine. Apparently. <laughs> and uh, i went back and and i was standing in this room with him and then and then later that night um he came to see the show twice and um later that night he gave a speech and to be standing so close to him while he said those words yes we can was just extraordinary and then um when when trump got elected uh it was just a a whiplash a complete whiplash for for me and uh, most of the people in the show. And, and that became a whole thing when Mike Pence uh, came to see the show. And then um, Donald Trump tweeted about that. And that's sort of where my stories actually began picking up a lot of traction. I wrote, I had a an, a, an interaction, a very brief interaction with Mike Pence. And I wrote, uh, you know, like four sentences about that. And, and it sort of went viral, that story, that little, those four Well, sentences.
1: yeah. And, and you had this interaction with Pence and, and he got close and and was ready uh, maybe to extend the hand for a handshake. And you, you were already dealing with some great ambivalence about him being there. But I thought, man, you stood tall in the moment. Can you explain what you did?
0: Yes, uh, I was. Stand, I happened to be standing between two friends of mine, both of whom are gay. And uh, Mike Pence, as, as you know, he is clear about is um, due to his religious convictions, believes that that it's not okay to be gay, that it's against his his religious uh beliefs or, or and um and has has actually promoted some legislation in Indiana uh that diverted money away from AIDS research towards uh, uh a system that involved what's known as conversion therapy, mm-hmm. the belief that you can basically electrocute uh someone's gayness out of them, which science says is absurd. anyway I was standing beside these two friends, one of whom is a friend I've known for a long time, and she she was weeping. She literally started weeping. She, was just, uh, she wasn't prepared for how emotional it was going to be for her to be that close to someone who openly says the things he says. So as he's walking up to us, she's crying. The guy beside me has his arms crossed, and I think uh, I was the guy that looked most likely to be friendly to him. <laughs> So he's coming up to me, and he's either, like, going to shake my hand or wave or something. And I, in that moment, I just couldn't do that, which was very hard for me because, you know, I'm a friendly guy. And in that moment, he wasn't the sort of cartoon evil character I'd I'd created in my brain. He was a a human being. Um, As it turned out, I happened to be wearing the pin uh, that Lynn – when Lynn gave his speech – at the Tony Awards, uh, the rather famous sonnet, uh, including the words, love is love is love is love is love. And pins were made with those words on it. And I happened to be wearing that pin on my chest. Uh, so when Mike came up to me, I just pointed to it and he looked at it. Uh, and I don't know if he knew to what it referred or not. Uh, I just knew that it was clear to him that I was not <laughs> I was not on board Um with with um what he in my opinion stood for so that that that's what happened that's
1: there. a it's a great story now you meet so many famous people from Derek Jeter to uh, Amy Schumer who sounds like a, a, a huge mensch but I was so yeah. moved by the stories of some of the everyday people my gosh from you know the make-a-wish kid to well, young people from all walks of life whose, whose greatest dream was to come mm-hmm. see this show and the reaction that they had. And to me, that's where the power of your role as part of the Hamilton family shines because they're not going to talk with, with Lynn, they're not going to talk with Chris Jackson, they're not going to talk with uh, with Renee, but they're going to talk with you, and you become their conduit to Hamilton.
0: That's true, that's right. And I and I and early on, I realized that because these kids, especially the kids, would come in, um, out of their minds with excitement, you know, which was an amazing thing to see. As you know, I mean, theater is is struggles in this country, given all of the entertainment options. Live theater um, struggles in a lot of places. And uh, to see these young kids this affected by a theater, by a, by a show, was just uh, extraordinary. And I, I recognized early on that they looked at us as a part of the whole experience. You know, my friend... Marie, who is my bar uh, partner and very dear friend, uh, you know, she she's also an actress and full of life and energy. And she puts on her own little show basically behind that bar. And uh, so so for the kids, it sort of starts as soon as they enter. And because of that, they open they're very open with us. And um, I've had some of the greatest you know conversations in my life. Um uh, with these kids who who you know like one of my favorite favorites uh and this one almost makes me cry when I try to tell this story. it was so adorable, but this kid uh, and his, his this brother and his littler sister came in, and um the the girl said to me, you know sort of teasing her older brother, she said he started crying as soon as he came in, he started crying, and the little boy said to me, yeah, I did and i'm and I'm not embarrassed about it either because my heart is just my heart is just bursting right now. That's what he said. It was the sweetest thing, right? So, so then uh, they get their drinks, then they start to walk away, and then his sister, as his when her brother gets far enough away, she comes back to me and sort of whispers, um, "Just so you know, my heart is bursting too." <laughs> and it was the sweetest, you know, just the sweetest thing uh, to see these little hearts bursting because of a, a, a musical theater. Uh, it, really, just an incredible thing to witness
1: there's also and i and i don't want to i don't want to spoil it because i want people to buy the book it's so great but there is a, a story that uh man i i tear up just thinking about the story you tell about robin williams
0: oh god yeah yes robin um so this was this is before hamilton obviously he passed before but he he um did a show at, at the Richard Rogers, um, called, uh, uh, Bengal tiger at the Baghdad zoo. And he befriended, there's a, there's a woman who her name is Fran, who we just recently lost as well. So, um, God, Godspeed to you, Fran. Um, but Fran uh, is everyone's favorite person in the theater. She's the—I refer to her in the book as the bathroom directions lady. Uh, her her main job was to tell people where to go to the bathroom, which she took incredibly seriously. Uh, I was not, literally, not allowed. If she heard me tell someone, even point to the bathroom, I was in big trouble with Fran <laughs> because that was her job, and she was going to do it. Uh, that's what she was paid for. So, but she was just the most. She was 93, um, and, but just entirely full of life, and, and her mind was as sharp as it was when it was 18. You know, she was just this incredibly funny, lovely woman, and Robin immediately took to her for, for very obvious reasons, and he would come out every night to the lobby to sit with Fran. And laughed like crazy he he she would tell him jokes <laughs> and and he would just guffaw at her jokes, and they became these best friends and and one of my this just this lovely thing, Robin was an amazing guy. I got to meet him a couple of times, and he meant a lot to me in my own life, which I talk about a little bit in the book um and meeting him in person, I'm happy to say he lived up to every possible conceivable notion of what I thought he might be and exceeded it. He was just the most lovely uh, person that you could possibly imagine who gave every ounce of energy he had, no matter uh, if you were standing alone with him in the wing of a theater, or if he was on stage for the world. He, He gave that same energy to everyone. He just wanted everyone to laugh. He wanted everyone to feel better. Um, So after when the show came to a close, he got gifts for everybody in the house. And most people got dog tags um, that he'd had engraved. And Fran, though, was the only person who did not get a dog tag. (laughs) What Fran got was a diamond necklace from Tiffany's. Wow. (laughs) Like this incredible diamond necklace from Tiffany's. That's what Fran uh, meant to Robin um, and, and, and what Robin meant to all of us.
1: So, is that the story that you were? That is, oh, that's about? yeah, absolutely okay. wonderful. Uh, now, Mike, uh, before we let you go away from Hamilton, I want to just ask for a moment about uh, this Netflix series that you're going to be a part of. Can you tell us a little bit about Surviving Death?
0: Yes, yes. This was a, another um, uh, turn that my life took, another unexpected turn. After my dad passed, I had some incredible experiences with a medium, a, a woman who who claimed that she could hear or, or somehow sense our deceased loved ones uh, and being of a, a scientific bent, you know I had before I became an actor, I'd wanted to be a high school science teacher as so though I've always loved science. Um, and I had an experience that science says is not possible. So I began to uh, research that and then I started to make a documentary about what was going on and while that was happening, someone who was in my documentary, a woman named Leslie Kane, who is a New York Times uh, best-selling author, and she recently broke all of the news about the, the UFO stuff in the New York Times. She's the one who's written all of those articles. Um, she wrote a book called Surviving Death, and uh, she was in my documentary, and Netflix decided to make this six-part series that looks at the various lines of evidence suggesting that consciousness can exist as something separate from the human body and perhaps uh, survive beyond the demise of the human body so it's um going to be released on january 6th and it follows some of my some of my story in there um and i'm also going to be having a book release uh that tells my whole story in detail um called love dad how my how my dad died then told me he didn't and that will be released in uh in january as well so january 6th uh, surviving death on
1: netflix we we'll look forward to that uh, mike's book life at hamilton sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story it is uh man it is just a wondrous piece of work about the power of theater but also the power of kindness i laughed when i wasn't crying all through the book mike <laughs> it was uh, just a, a delightful read and uh, it's so good to have you on to talk with us about uh, the great book thank you so much for being with us today mike
0: That's been my honor. Thank you so much, Rich.
1: Mike Anthony, and uh, boy, his book is So Good Life at Hamilton. Some amazing stories in there that will uh, make you embrace uh, the power of of theater, but most of all, kindness. And uh, now we can all be a part of something bigger just by reaching out a hand to people. Great stuff. And our thanks to Mike for being with us, and author Peter Goralnik as well. And thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance. For Kerry Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We will see you next time here on Downtown.